All right, if you don't know, and most of you do, we're walking verse by verse, study through the book of Mark, and right now we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to do verse 1 through 12 today. Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. Before we read that, let me give you a little bit of the context of things that are going on as we lead up to chapter 12, verse 1, just some of the context here, okay? Uh, you know, most of you know this, uh, Mark 11 through Mark 16 which is about a third of this gospel, is all devoted to that last week before Jesus is crucified. So that's what we're in right now. We're in that last week, a lot of, a third of the book of Mark, a lot of information given to us about the last week of Jesus' life before he is crucified. And that's what we're walking into. That's what we walked into starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, in Mark 11, verse 1, the way this started off is Jesus headed into Jerusalem Riding on a donkey is that Zechariah 9-9 king. You remember that? Zechariah 9-9 king, and he comes into Jerusalem. And if you remember, the religious leaders did not like this. This ticked them off. In fact, they looked at, they looked at Jesus' disciples, and they said, tell these people to be quiet. Tell them to quit saying what they're saying. Tell them to quit praising you. And Jesus said, if they remain silent, the rocks will begin to cry out. This ticked off the religious leaders as Jesus headed in for this last week before he's crucified, riding on a donkey, donkey as a Zechariah 9-9 king. Then, the next day, Jesus enters into the temple. And if you remember, this is in Mark 11. He enters into the temple, and he begins to just wreck the place. Okay? He wreaks havoc in the temple, and he's just putting out all this false religion that has come into the temple and come into the, the Jews that are there celebrating at that time. So he just begins to deal with false religion. If you remember, if you remember the, 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 the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they did not like it that, they, that he did this. In fact, they hated it. In fact, chapter 11, verse 18 says they begin to plot to destroy him. They begin to plan how they can kill Jesus. So everything that he's doing in this last week, the religious leaders hate it. In fact, I want to read chapter 11, verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Now, next day of this last week of his, of his life before he's crucified, the next day he's in the temple and he's teaching, and these same religious leaders that don't like what he's doing, they approach him, and they begin to try to discredit him. They begin to, to try to uh, come up against his authority and buck his authority, and they try to discredit him. They don't, they don't like Jesus. And that's in chapter 11, verse 27 through 33, which Dustin taught last week. And if you remember that section, Jesus just puts them to shame in a debate with one question. Okay, He puts them to shame in a debate with one question. Then beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, we're going to see Jesus, after He puts them to shame with that one question, and he, he whoops them in the debate, and right after that, in chapter 12, verse 1, He's going to begin to tell them a parable. And it's going to be against them. And this parable is not just going to put them down in the debate, but it's going to dig into their heart, into their soul, and get down to their motives in this parable that He's about to tell. These people that want to kill Jesus... He's about to yank it right out and show everybody their motives in what we're about to read. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. We're going to read it all. Read it with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for it for the wine vat, and built a tower. 
And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him, sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So here's our scripture, verses 1 through 9. Jesus begins to look at these people, give them a parable. That's verses 1 through 9. Verses 10 and 11, he, he attaches an Old Testament prophecy right up next to it. And then we see that these people that he spoke this parable against do not respond very well. Okay, so let's start off with the first phrase. First phrase there, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Who is them? Who is them? Who's he speaking to in parables? Them here is verse 20, chapter 11, verse 27. It's those religious leaders. The, the priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel, the religious leaders. And he's speaking to them. Okay, these are the people that want to murder him, the people that want to destroy him. And then he's speaking to them in what it calls parables. Verses 1 through 9 is this parable that Jesus lays out in front of them. And what is a parable? Many people call a parable an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. An earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. And this parable is very unique in that most parables are meant to hide the truth. Most parables, they act as a judgment towards those who do not have ears to hear and they actually disclose the truth. Now many people believe that the parables were meant to make the truth more plain. That's not necessarily true. You read Mark chapter 4 that we were in earlier or a few months back. It's very clear that he spoke these parables. He began to speak in parables to those who did not have ears to hear so that it would disclose the truth. It would cloud the truth from them and then he would explain those parables to his disciples. But this one is unique. And what makes it unique? Those who didn't have ears to hear, they got it. They got the meaning of this parable. This par parable exposed truth to them, and they saw it very clearly. You see that in chapter 12, verse 12, when it says they knew, they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They knew that. Now, this parable, I want to tell you this. We're going to dig into this parable and we're going to kind of unpack it in just a minute. Before we do this, I want you to see that this parable is meant to stir up anger in the hearers. This parable is meant to stir up anger in you. And it was meant to stir up anger in these religious leaders. And then as they're stirred up to anger, then Jesus is going to turn it on them. Okay? This parable is meant to stir up anger. Now what do I mean it's meant to stir up anger? Let me give you an Old Testament example. 
2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 13. You don't have to flip there. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 13. We're going to see something happen that's going to explain what I mean, where a story is told, a parable is told, and it's meant to stir up anger, and then it gets turned on the person who's listening. Okay? Here's what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The context is David and Bathsheba. You think about what this man had done. David, while he's sitting at home and the men are out at war, what does he do? He, he's got all, he's the king, he has all that he wants. And this man, this man that's out to war fighting for him, he takes the man's wife. He takes his wife. And if that doesn't make you mad enough, after he gets her pregnant, he actually tries to hide it. And so he brings that man home and tries to get him to sleep with her before anybody knows that she's pregnant by David. And if that doesn't make you angry, when the man comes home and he's too noble to go sleep with his wife while he knows that his brother's out at war, he murders the man. This is what David does. And this ought, you ought to be fuming when you think about what David did in that moment because God was. Now, God sends Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12. God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And when he sends him to David, Nathan begins, he starts off speaking to David. He tells him a parable. He tells him a story. And David doesn't know that he's actually talking about himself. But Nathan tells him a story. And here's the gist of the story that he tells him. Listen to it. Two men living in a city. Two men living in this city. One of them very, very rich. And the other one is very, very poor. The rich man has a bunch of flocks and sheep and goats, herds, etc. He's just got all these flocks, all these sheep, all these lambs. And the poor man has nothing except for one little baby lamb that he bought with a little bit of money that he had. And this is the story that Nathan's telling David. And here's what happened. This, this lamb that this poor man had, he nourished this lamb. He cherished this little lamb. It grew up together with him and his children. His children were attached to it. His children loved this lamb. It says in, the, in that parable that the lamb actually used to eat from the man's food. He used to drink from his cup. This little lamb used to even sleep with this man. This lamb was like a daughter, it says. Nathan said it was like a daughter. This little lamb like a daughter to this man. And you know what happens? The rich man has a traveler come through. And when that traveler comes through, this greedy man doesn't want to take of his abundance of flocks and all the lambs that he has. And this greedy man doesn't want to take from his own to feed this traveler. Instead, he goes and he takes that poor man's lamb, takes it from his house, takes it from his children, and he kills it, and he cooks it, and he eats it. And this ought to tick you off. It ought to make you mad. And here's what happened. Nathan tells the story to David and listen to what happened with David. Listen, listen to what happened. And David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And then Nathan turns it on David. You are the man. David, you're the man. You're the one that took from the guy who had nothing and you took it from him. You're the man. You see what happened? He drew David. Nathan drew David into the story, aroused his anger, and then turned it on and said, you are the one. And similarly, in a similar way, this is what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 12. This, this parable is meant to stir up anger in the hearers, and it actually works. It works. Now let me explain how it worked, okay? If, if you take this account. Now, 
In the parable, you got the wicked vine dressers, the ones that killed the servants, the ones that's trying to take a land that's not their own. They didn't even build it. And these vine dressers, some of your verses say tenants, they're like renters. And, and they're the ones that killed the man's son and cast him out like a dog. These are the men that did that. Now, Jesus is using them to represent the religious leaders that he's looking at in the eye. That's who they represent. And the religious leaders don't even know it yet. If you take the different accounts from Matthew 21, Luke 20, Mark 12, those different accounts that speak of this same parable. If you take them and you put them together, here's what happened. Jesus begins to tell this parable. And man, these religious leaders are drawn in. They do not realize that they are the vine dressers and they're drawn into this parable. And they hear about these wicked vine dressers that killed a servant and killed another servant and beat another one down and then killed the son. And their, their anger is being aroused. And when you read Matthew 21, Jesus looks at them and He says, what will, the, what will the owner of the vineyard do to these wicked vine dressers who killed the son? What will they do? And listen to what the religious leaders say in Matthew 21, 41. They say, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. I mean, they got a deep felt anger. Listen to the ESV. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. They don't even realize that they're the ones. They're the ones. And as you take these accounts together, what you're going to realize, you take the different accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize that Jesus repeats it. And he says, you're right. You're right, he's going to destroy those wicked vine dressers. And in that moment, they got it. And in Luke chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 16, the religious leaders say, certainly not. Certainly not. You see what happened? He drew them into the story and he, he made them angry at these wicked vine dressers. And then he said, you are the man. You are the ones who did this. You are the ones that want to murder the son. It's you. He turns it on them. Now, I want you to get a feel for this, okay? So I, we're not going to go so much, so much uh, reading verse by verse, but I want you to get a feel for this parable. I'm not as good a storyteller as Jesus is, okay? But I want you to think about this story, verses 1 through 9, this parable, and I want you to just try. Try to feel the anger that should be arousing your soul over this parable, just like the people standing around would have heard that day. Think about it. A man worked hard to build a vineyard. His vineyard. He worked hard to build this vineyard. It's this beautiful plantation full of mouth-watering grapes that they would squeeze the juice out of and get grape juice and eventually wine. And he built this vineyard. It's this place where he can make a profit. He puts a hedge around it, it says in verse 1. A hedge around, which is like a wall for protection. He builds a tower in it, it says in verse 1. A tower in this place as a lookout tower and a place to store things. But he builds this vineyard. He puts his, his sweat into it. And then he goes off to a far country with his family. And before he goes off to a far country, he gives this vineyard into the care of renters. Okay? Or some of your verses say tenants. Mine says vine dressers. Either way, these are men. This would have been a gracious thing. These men get to work his land. These men, these vine dressers, get to make a living off of the owner's land. And, and, and what they would do, the way the owner would get paid, was he would send back, he's in a far country with his family, and he would send back somebody, or he himself would go, and he would get a portion of the fruit, or a portion of the wine. He would get, that's how he would get paid. But these, these vine dressers, these renters, they would get to live off this land on their own. This is, this is what they were committed to, and how they would be committed to pay the owner. Now, 
when the time came, the, the, the owner of the vineyard sent his servant to, to go get the fruit. Okay, you remember that in the parable? The owner of the vineyard sends his servant to go get the fruit, to go get a portion of the fruit. And the renters would not give the owner what was rightfully his. Instead, what did they do? They beat down that servant and they sent him away empty-handed. And at this moment, at this moment, the people here in this parable are in shock. They did what? That's not right. That's his stuff. It's his land and it's his portion. It's what's rightfully his. And they beat down his servant? What? Can you imagine the shock of this owner of the vineyard that sends his servant and they won't give him what's rightfully his. So what does the owner do? Surely, surely the owner will show up there and bring down sudden destruction on them people, right? No. It says he sends another servant. He sends another servant. And this servant, they begin to beat him over the head and they begin to treat him very, very shamefully. Can you feel the anger rising up in the owner of the vineyard? Why would they do such a thing? This is my land. It's not theirs. They're trying to take the land. They're trying to take the fruit. Why would they do such a thing? Why would they beat the people that I send to them? So surely, what will the owner do now? What will he do? Surely he'll, he'll send a, an army in there and just destroy these wicked vine dressers, right? But what does he do? And it says he sends another servant. He sends another servant. And this one they don't just beat and they don't just shame, but they murder him. They kill this man. Can you imagine this? This man is sending his own, these are his people. He's sending his own people again and again and again. And they're murdering his people and they're beating down his people. Can you imagine this? So what will the owner do now? Three servants, two beaten, one kill. What will he do now? Surely he'll send in and kill these wicked men. Surely he'll do that. But what does he do? In chapter 12, verse 5 says, and many others. And many others in chapter 12, verse 5. And many others. They beat some and they killed some. So can you imagine that? He just keeps sending servants to these men over and over again. One's beaten, another's killed. Another's beaten, another one's killed. Over and over again. Can you imagine it? The fourth servant sent. The fifth servant sent. The sixth one sent. The seventh one sent. The eighth one sent. At some point you're going, this owner is out of his mind. What's he doing? He keeps sending these servants and they keep getting beaten and killed, why not just destroy them? So after sending multiple servants, and all of them beaten or killed, what's he going to do next? I mean, he's going to rain down fire and brimstone if he had the power, right? And what does he do next? It, it says that he sends his only son, his beloved son. He sends his son. He said, it calls him in, in the verse right here. It says he sends him his beloved son. This is a son that he loved. He didn't have ill will against this son, but this is a son that he loved. He, he raised this son. He saw him from birth. He held him on his shoulder, put him to sleep, tucked him into bed at night. This is his son. This is the one he taught him how to work as a man. He probably worked with him on this vineyard. And he sends his son. And with the wicked vine dressers, the renters, Will they hear the son? Will they submit to the son? And the answer is no. In a greedy attempt to take the vineyard to themselves, they murder the son. And they don't even give him a proper burial. Instead, they cast him out like a mangy dog. Just cast him out of the vineyard. You mad? This make your blood boil? And here's these guys. And Jesus looks at these religious leaders and He says, 
Now, what will the owner of the vineyard, what will he do to these men? What will he do? So let me ask you, what will he do? What will the owner of the vineyard do to these men? What will he do to these vine dressers? And maybe you answer just like they did. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Or maybe you answer like Jesus did in chapter 12, verse 9. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now here's the deal. The religious leaders knew It says in chapter 12, verse 12, they knew that this was spoken against them. So they caught the meaning. They caught caught it. They caught the meaning of this parable. So let's talk really quick. What's the meaning of this parable? What is the symbolism that's given here? What's the meaning? First thing, the vineyard represents the people of Israel. The vineyard itself that was built by the owner represents the people of Israel. You can see this all over the Old Testament. Psalm 80 uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they all speak, they all speak to the house of Israel as his vineyard. His vineyard, this beautiful plantation of grapes and should produce fruit. But especially in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, it's almost as if you can see that Jesus is getting his information from this place in the scriptures. Okay, it's almost like Jesus knows, and He does, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, and He's using it to make this parable. For example, listen to Isaiah 5, 2. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. Here's this, this one, planting a vineyard, just like in the parable. He built a tower in its midst, just like in our parable. And also made a wine press in it, just like in our parable. And Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 says, And the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the vineyard equals the people of Israel. Now who is the owner? Who's the builder of, the, who's the builder of this vineyard? And this is God the Father. This is God the Father. God is the owner and the builder of all things. He lets us work in His vineyard, and this is just His grace, and we're no more than mere mere tenants. But He is the owner and the maker of all things. What about the vine dressers? Or some of your versions say tenants. The renters. Who are these people? These are the leaders of the house of Israel. The vineyard is the house of Israel, and these tenants, these vine dressers, are the leaders of the house of Israel, past and present. In other words, he's looking at the vine dressers and there's been vine dressers all throughout Israelite history of the leaders, the religious leaders of the house of Israel. In the parable, the vine dressers who are the murderers of the son are eventually destroyed. In reality, the religious leaders that he's looking at desired to kill the real son of God and they know that this parable is spoken against them. Chapter 12, verse 12. And if it's spoken against them, they know that they are those vine dressers. They're the ones. The servants. What about the servants? The owners sending servants back to those vine dressers over and over again. Who are these servants? And these servants are the prophets of old. These servants are the, the messengers from God sent to the house of Israel. God in His mercy sent messengers again and again and again and again all throughout the Old Testament sending messengers, sending prophets to His people and that's who these servants represent. Let me give you an example. At the end, at the end of the life of the people of Israel as a standalone nation, just before they're taken into Babylon and they become slaves, the end of the life 
of the people of Israel as a standalone nation, something is said. Listen to this. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. Listen. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warning to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. Doesn't that sound like our parable? They despised His words. They scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. So here's God having much compassion and sending messenger after messenger after messenger and they deny Him and they reject Him. Doesn't this sound like our parable? I want you to think about it like this too. This day, okay, you can read, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, okay? And in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says he spoke to them in parables, plural. But we only get one parable recorded in Mark. The other parables are recorded in the other places like in Matthew. And listen, I want you to think about this. He just spoke this parable that these servants were sent over and over again. And they kept being murdered or beaten, murdered or beaten, rejected. And just a few hours later, on the exact same day, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 29. Listen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to the same religious leaders. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. You see this comparison to our parable? That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. This kind of reception, think about Jesus saying these things together. The, the servants sent are the prophets, the messengers of, messengers of God. And the messengers of God have always received this kind of reception. All through the Old Testament, this is the kind of reception they receive. They're cast out. They're beaten. They're imprisoned. The history says Isaiah was sawn in two. And this is all throughout history. This is how the messengers of God were treated. And then Jesus points you into the future. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of reception that messengers of God have received since the New Testament days, the day Jesus spoke this, until today. And we're supposed to learn from this. Listen to this verse in Matthew. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so, listen, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The servants equal the messengers of God, shamefully treated. It's been happening since the very beginning. Now, last character in the parable. The owner's son. Who is the owner's son? It should be obvious, right? Jesus. Who is the owner's son? This is God the Son. Jesus Christ. The son in the parable willingly went to the vine dressers knowing that he would be destroyed. 
And in the same way, Jesus willingly steps into this world and he steps up to the plate knowing that he'll be killed. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own. Jesus and his own did not receive him. We see Jesus. We read through Mark and we've, as we come through Mark, we see Jesus repetitively saying, I'm about to be killed. Hey, disciples, I'm about to be killed. I'm going to be killed at the hands of those religious leaders. And he's telling them this over and over and over again. And right here, he gives a parable. And he, and he gives them the exact same truth. This is no accident. This is no mistake. I will be killed. The Son is Jesus. We are the ones who deserve death. We are the ones who deserve eternal hell. And Jesus humbled himself to be killed like the Son in this parable and cast out like a mangy dog. This must be a very shocking thing for the religious leaders to hear. You think about it. Think about it. See, we, we read this and we get insight into what's going on into the religious leaders' hearts. But you imagine at the time, these people didn't know. Nobody knew but the religious leaders. Nobody knew but them that they had plans, hidden plans to murder Jesus. Nobody knew it but them. And Jesus just exposes them. He exposes their plan their innermost thoughts to destroy Jesus. Now, what about that Old Testament prophecy? Verse 10 and 11. You got our parable in verse 1 through 9 and verse 10. Listen. Jesus says to him, have you not even read this scripture? Don't you love it when he says that to the religious leaders? Haven't you read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The parable was incomplete. The parable left the son dead and cast out. This is how he left. So then he puts a parable, I mean, he puts a prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy right up next to it to round off the meaning of this parable, to help with the interpretation of this parable. And the quotation is from Psalm 118. This is a psalm that everybody knew was about the Messiah. When Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, this is the psalm that they're quoting. Hosanna, the son of David, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew this is a psalm about the Messiah. And Jesus points to this same psalm about the Messiah, Psalm 118. And he, and, he, and he applies it to their situation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So here's the picture. A building is being erected. And, and there's this one stone. Okay, uh, the building's being erected and there's one stone that the so-called builders see and they reject that stone. But that was a big mistake. Why? Because that was the, that was the most important, most foundational stone of them all, the chief cornerstone, and they cast it out. So those so-called builders are fired. Fired. And that stone that they rejected actually becomes the chief cornerstone. And Jesus lays up this parable. Excuse me, this Old Testament verse, this Old Testament prophecy right next to the parable. And by doing this, Jesus is letting these religious leaders get in on a little secret. He's letting them in on a little secret that he knows about, but they don't know about. And here's the secret that they are actually fulfilling prophecy by having plans to murder the son. They are the builders that rejected the stone. And he's letting them in on that secret that they are actually fulfilling prophecy. This, this passage, this Old Testament quotation, shows the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the, the stone which the builders rejected, that's His death. 
Like the son was rejected and killed and cast out. That's his death. And where's his resurrection? Has become the chief cornerstone. You see the death and the resurrection of Jesus in verses 10 and 11 in Psalm 118. Now, Jesus not only lets them in on the secret, according to this verse, not only does he let them in on the secret that they're fulfilling prophecy and being the ones that murder him, but he's also letting them in on another secret. And here it is. He ain't staying dead. He ain't staying dead. He's going to be, he's the chief cornerstone and he will rise again and they will be destroyed. And this parable and this quotation lets them in on this little secret. Now, how do the religious leaders respond? Look at verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. They knew, they knew that Jesus had spoken this parable against them. And this would have been a perfect opportunity when they get confronted with this truth, a perfect opportunity for them to repent of their sins and bow down to King Jesus as the chief cornerstone. This would have been the perfect moment to do that. And yet they reject Him still. They become even angrier. And it says they want to lay hands on Him, arrest Him, kill Him, destroy Him. This is what's in their heart. Now, that's the end of our passage. I have six questions. Okay? Six questions I want to dig into. They're there at the bottom of your study guide. Six questions about this whole passage. Question number one. What did Jesus intend for these religious leaders to glean from this parable and Old Testament quotation? In other words, He's looking at these religious leaders who hate Him, who want to destroy Him. As Jesus says this parable and this Old Testament quotation, what does He want them to take away from it? What does Jesus want them to take away? Let me give you a couple things. One is this. They have already bucked Jesus' authority with their words and with their arguments. We saw this in chapter 11. Dustin taught on this last week. They've already tried to come against His authority with their words, with their arguments, out of their mouth, to try to trap Him in His words. But there's a deeper plan. There's a hidden plan that nobody knows about but them and Jesus. There's a hidden plan to destroy Him. And here's what Jesus does. He wants them to know that He knows all about it. He knows all about their plan. And so he wants these religious leaders to see this. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. They may think that they have hidden plans. They may think that they have hidden ideas or hidden sins, but Christ Jesus knows everything and He lets them know that He knows all about it through this parable and through this quotation. You might think you have hidden things. This applies to us today. You may think you have hidden things, but nothing gets past the penetrating gaze of Jesus who sees deep into the soul, even down into the motives. He sees everything. Nothing gets by Him. You might fool man but you'll never fool Christ. Listen to Psalm 94.7. Don't be like these men. Don't be like these men. Listen. They say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? You can't hide anything. In Christ Jesus. He sees all and He lets these religious leaders know about it. 
Now, what else does Jesus want these religious leaders to take away? What else do we see here? I think that Jesus wants to plant in them a seed of soberness about what they are doing. Just a seed of soberness. Because if what Jesus said is true, if, if this prophecy really does apply to Him, then what He just told those religious leaders, you are planning to murder the Son of the living God. You are planning to murder the Christ. And you think of the soberness that should come over them in that moment. And this would have been a great time. A great time to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, they reject Him still. Second question. Question number two. What did Jesus intend for the bystanders? This is including the twelve. To glean from this parable in the Old Testament quotation. In other words, the people that are around, he's, speak, he's speaking right at these religious leaders, and what does he intend for those around? There's multitudes around. What does he intend for them to take away from this parable and this quote from Psalm 118? And here's what I want to tell you. Think about this. The Jews, the Jews gathered together at that time, they were looking for a Christ to come as God in the flesh and as Savior and as King. That wasn't the problem. But here's what was the problem. They were not looking for one that would suffer and die. They weren't looking for that one. And Jesus keeps saying the Christ is going to suffer and die. All the way back to Mark chapter 8, He's been teaching them, I'm the Christ and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And this just doesn't fit to them. They don't understand that. That's the problem. And this parable, and this quotation is another place where He puts it in front of their face and all the bystanders see the Christ must suffer and die. Remember, Peter had a problem with this. In Mark chapter 8, he told them that he, he said, the Christ must suffer, the Christ must die at the hands of these religious leaders. And Peter rebukes him. You remember that? Or in John chapter 12, just think about this with me. As you read the account in John chapter 12, as, as soon as Jesus is headed in, riding on that donkey, he begins to say things like this. This is all in John 12. Listen, Jesus begins to say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. John 12, 24. Talking about death. Listen, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Speaking about his death in John 12, 27. Listen, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. John 12, 32. He's purposely, purposefully signifying to these people that he's going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die through John 12. And then listen, how do the people respond? Listen to how the people respond in John 12, 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. I thought the Christ was going to be king forever. How is it that you can say the Son of Man must be lifted up? This parable, see they didn't get it. They didn't realize that this Christ is going to suffer and die. So he wants these bystanders to see that the Christ must suffer. He shows it to them in a parable and he proves it with an Old Testament quotation. Okay, now what else? What else does Jesus want the, the bystanders to see? What does he want them to take away from this parable and quotation? He wants them to see that his death is no accident. His death is no mistake. He did not try to start a movement and become the Christ King and then fail. That's not what happened. It's always been the eternal plan of God that the Son of God would come into this world as God in the flesh and suffer and die. That's always been the plan. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to it. Listen. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, 
but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the death of Jesus. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen to this. He, the lamb who was slain, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Did that just say before the foundation of the world? Before the foundation? This is the mind-blowing reality. Mind-blowing. God did not create people. And then, oops, they rebelled against me. Oh no, what do I do? Plan B. This is not what happened. This is the mind-blowing, mind-blowing reality. God knew before time began that these people would rebel against Him. And before time began, before the foundation of the world, it was foreordained that the Christ would suffer and die for their sins. And that He would be raised as the supreme one. This has always been the plan. And in the same way, you see Jesus. He steps into this world. He steps in. And He doesn't step in with some kind of glimmer of hope that maybe these people will accept Me. He knows they're going to reject Him. Think about the Son in the parable sent from the Father. Surely He wasn't ignorant enough to think, maybe, the, maybe I'll be okay. He's seen servant after servant after servant d- just killed, murdered, cast out, beaten. Surely that Son knew as He was heading in to, the, to, the, to get the fruit from the vineyard that He too would be harmed. And in the same way, Jesus knows, he knows perfectly the price that he had to pay for our souls. The wrath of God poured out on him, and he pays the price in full anyways. Question number three. What does this passage teach us about God the Father? What does this passage teach us about God the Father? This parable and this Old Testament quote, what does it teach us about God the Father? This parable shows us God's abundant mercy and His abundant patience. He is so merciful toward our sins. He's so patient with our weaknesses. He's so merciful, so patient. You think about how ridiculous this parable makes the Father sound. Not God the Father, the Father in the parable. Think about how ridiculous it makes Him sound. He sends a servant. They beat him. He sends another one. They beat him. He sends another one. They kill him. He sends another one. They beat him. Why do you keep sending servants? It seems ridiculous. It makes him seem crazy. And this is what happened when you take an attribute of God, the patience and mercy of God, and you apply it to a human story. The humans seem unhuman. And he applies the mercy and patience of God. We can't comprehend it. We can't understand it. Isaiah 65 verse 1. Verse 1 through 3, it describes God's mercy and patience. And it describes it like this. It says that God said, Here am I, here am I, to a people not even called by His name. And He held out His hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, according to their own dictates, who, walk, who, who provoke Him to His face continually. And He holds out His hands. Here am I, here am I, the mercy in the patience of God. How beautifully the mercy and patience of God is demonstrated in this parable. Think about it. The mercy and patience of God demonstrated in His waiting. Why did He wait? Why did He keep waiting? Why not just pour out wrath on these servants? Why not just kill them after? He would have been totally justified, totally in the right to pour out His anger and destruction on these vine dressers the first time they rejected Him. And yet He waits, and He waits, and He waits, and He waits. And I can see this testimony in my own life. 
I can see this in my own life. I was a wicked man, a young man, very, very wicked before God, doing very wicked things. And there was a few little things. I had a slight little fear of God, just a slight little fear of God that kept me from saying things like GD, using God's name in vain. That just felt like it was too much in God's face. You feel me? And when I was a sophomore in college, I turned from that. And I cast off all restraint. It was GD this and GD that in his face, wearing Jesus's my homeboy has backwards into the club, a wicked man. And God could have poured out almighty wrath in that moment. And it would have been perfectly righteous for him to do so. And he waited. He waited for me. His patience, his mercy, as he waited for you. Can you think of it? He waited for you. Is he waiting for you right now? Is he patient with you now as I speak? He's very merciful, very patient. It's not only demonstrated in his waiting, but it's demonstrated in his warnings. He keeps giving these warnings through the servants in the parable. Do they deserve the warnings? No. Do any of us deserve warnings? No. This is the patience of God. The patience of a God who issues warnings that get ignored and get rejected and His response is to issue more warnings again and again and again. He even allows His holy name, His holy name to be diminished for, for, for this to exalt His patience and His mercy. Think about it. Think about it. There's a verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Because God has not returned yet, because, because Christ has not come back for that second coming, these mockers and these scoffers, they're bringing down His name saying, where's the promise of His coming? Where's it at? And Jesus allows that to go on. And you know why He allows it to go on? Because just a few verses later it says this, the Lord's not slack concerning His promise to return. As some count slackness, but He is long-suffering. He's patient. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see His patience? He even allows people to say, where's the promise of His coming? With a mocking voice. He's patient towards you. He's patient towards us. He's merciful. And we see, it in his, we see it in His waiting in the parable. We see it in His warning. And we see it in the sending of His Son. He sent His Son. He sent His Son. To die, to suffer and die. He sent His Son. Oh, the mercy and patience of Jesus. Oh, the mercy and patience of God the Father. But there's something else we see about God in this parable. Listen. Something else we see about God the Father. Not only we see His mercy, mercy and patience, but we also see that that outstretched hand of mercy will one day be retracted forever. We see that in the parable. That this patience that God has will one day run out. It'll happen. It'll run out. That hand of mercy will be retracted forever. You think about it. Those wicked vine dressers ignored the great mercy and patience of the Father. They just ignored it over and over again. They spit in the face of His long suffering. They did not heed His messengers. They did not heed the warnings. They did not bow down to the Son. And eventually, the owner's patience ran out. And He came. And He came with force. And He brought down destruction on those wicked men. You see it in the parable. And this is true about God. Is He patient with us? Is He patient with us? Absolutely, He's patient with us. But there is a time when His patience will run out and it will be too late for you to repent and be saved. Is He merciful to us? 
Absolutely, He's merciful. Absolutely. But a time's coming when that hand of mercy is going to be retracted forever and you'll never be able to grab hold of it again. Ever. Imagine the extreme horror of this. Think with me about the extreme horror. The extreme horror of knowing that you're in eternity in hell. Eternal woe. Eternal torment. And you'll never again have a chance to grab hold to the hand of mercy that was extended to you by God. Can you imagine the horror of knowing that you're in hell and the hand of mercy was so close and you didn't grab it? Imagine the horror of this. There's a summary truth. Okay? What, do we, what does this parable teach us about God the Father? Here's the summary truth. Here's the summary truth. His mercy and His patience towards us is otherworldly. But it will run out. If you're not saved, if you're here and you're not saved, listen to me. Hear me out. His mercy towards you, listen, if you're not saved, His mercy towards you is unthinkable. His patience towards you is unthinkable. It is not too late for you to be saved. His mercy and patience is unthinkable towards you. This is the one that just kept sending servants over and over and over again. It's not too late for you to be saved. It's not too late for you to turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds out His hands all day long. Did you hear the verse? He holds out His hands all day long to people that provoke Him to His face. It is not too late for you. But listen to me. Don't wait. If you're here and you're not saved, don't wait. Because it will run out. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often rebuked, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. No more remedy. No more medicine for it. If you're here and you're not saved, turn to Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, and I'll say it to you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Number four. What does this passage teach us about God the Son? What does it teach us about God the Son? Listen. This shows us that, that God the Son is full of great boldness. Full of great courage. Why would the son of that owner step forward knowing that he was going to be destroyed? Why would he do that? And you see this picture of the son that's full of boldness, full of courage. Jesus, knowing everything that would happen to him, stepped up to the plate, endured unimaginable torment and shame. He had every right to fight back. And he had all the power accessible to him to fight back and destroy everyone around him. Yet he didn't. He didn't do it. He went forward with courage to suffer unthinkable, unthinkable pain to save sinners and wretches like me and you. When that hateful mob, I want you to think about this, when that hateful mob comes to get him in just a little while, they're going to get him and crucify him. Listen to, listen to what's going to happen. Jesus is going to see him coming. He sees that hateful mob coming. And listen to what John 18.4 says Jesus does. Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon Him, went forward. Jesus knowing all things that would come upon Him, He knew what was coming. And it says, He went forward. He knew that He would be beaten unjustly, and yet He went forward. He knew that He would be humiliated, and yet He went forward. He knew He'd be tortured with, with flogging, just flesh ripped off His bones, and yet He went forward. He knew He would be mocked, and spit upon, and ridiculed, and yet He went forward. He knew He'd be nailed to a nasty wooden cross, 
That he would hang there. He would suffer to get his breath. And yet, he went forward. And these are just the things that you can see. Other men have experienced this sort of torture. He also knew things that you could not see. Think about it. The verse just said, John 18, 4. He knew all things that would happen to him, and yet he went forward. He knew all things. He knew that the sin of the world was going to come laying on his back, and yet he went forward. He knew that the wrath of Almighty God was going to be poured out on him, full strength. He was going to suffer all of it, and yet he went forward. He knew that. Oh, the boldness and the courage of Jesus. Jesus, God the Son. The boldness and courage of Jesus. Also, we learn from this passage, one more thing about God the Son. We know that God the Son, does not, He does not remain dead after facing death and after facing the wrath of God. He does not stay dead. But He rises from the dead according to the Scriptures. He's seen by multitudes of eyewitnesses. He ascends back to heaven, seated on His throne, waiting till His enemies are made His footstool, waiting patiently for His people to turn to Him in repentance and faith. And one day He's going to return in eternal glory to give fullness of joy to those who are His and to bring down eternal woe on those who are not. It says in that Scripture, He he has become, the one that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone, risen, Ascended on high. Next question, verse 5. I mean, number 5. What does this passage say to any who are rejecting Christ? What does this passage say to anyone who's rejecting Jesus? This passage, this parable makes it plain. Servant is sent, a servant is sent, a servant is sent. Jesus is sent. The Son is sent. This parable makes it plain that Jesus is the final messenger. He's the one. You don't have Him, you have no hope. You reject Him, you have zero hope. Right after the Son is sent, they reject the servant, they reject the servant, they reject the servant. Then they reject the Son and eternal destruction comes down. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, God, in various times and various places, in times past, He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. If you reject the Son, there's no hope left. There's no hope left. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Me. You cannot get to the Father without the Son. Do not reject Him. And listen to me. This passage shows us that the most religious people in the world can reject Jesus. The most religious people in the world can reject the Son according to this passage. These men he's looking at in the eye, they're the spiritual elites. They're the religious zealots. They're the churchgoers. They're the good folk. That's them. These are the good people supposedly. And they rejected Christ and right now they are in hell. The most religious people in the world can reject Jesus. It's possible to accept Him in word and 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 shows some sort of spirituality and action, and yet you reject Him in your heart. Jesus describes people that come before Him in the last day, and they say, Lord, Lord. They call Him Lord. They address Him as Lord. And yet He says, depart from Me. I never knew you. Christ alone has got to be your hope and treasure. You cannot bank on your status as a good person, a good guy, a good girl. You can't bank on that. You cannot bank on your church attendance. You cannot bank on your religious zeal. It's got to be Christ and Christ alone. And if you reject Him, there's no hope for you. No hope for those who reject Christ. 
This passage teaches us about those who reject Christ that the end is destruction. The word used in the parable is destruction. The end is destruction for those who reject Christ. And Scripture does not, does not teach. Scripture does not teach that this just means a physical death and then you cease to exist. That is not what the Scripture teaches. Here's what the Scripture teaches about the destruction of those who reject the Son. It's torment day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.10 It's everlasting punishment. Matthew 25.46 Everlasting punishment. Punishment. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 9. And last one, Mark 9 45. They'll be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Just send tremors down your spine that there's an eternal suffering. It doesn't end. You don't cease to exist. You suffer for all of eternity. And this is the destruction. Therefore, I plead with you flee from the wrath to come. If you're here and you don't know Christ, flee from the wrath to come. God's mercy is extended to you through His Son, through the death of His Son. But if you reject it, there's no hope for you and it will be retracted at one point forever. Number six, and last one. What does this passage teach us about being messengers of God? What does this passage, this parable, this quotation, what does it teach us about being messengers of God? Now first let me make the connection. The, the connection with, of the messengers or the servants in the parable to every Christian in this room. Let me make the connection for you, okay? The servants of the owner, the servants of the owner were messengers sent to the vineyard to get the fruit. And they're a symbol of these prophets of old who were messengers to the world and especially to the people of Israel. The prophets of old, messengers to the world. And now, in the new covenant, in Christ Jesus, everyone who's a disciple of Christ, everyone who's a Christian, are now messengers of God, messengers of Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the ministry, the word of reconciliation. Now then, listen, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading, that's the message, as though God were pleading through us, makes us the messengers. God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. This verse lays it up that we are all messengers sent by the owner. So what can this parable teach us about being messengers of God? And the first thing we know in this parable, they're called servants. That's all we are. Just, just lowly servants. We don't have our own ideas. We just listen to our master. We don't have our own message. We just take the message of the master. We just take his news. We're just servants, just humble servants. That's all we are. And that's the first thing. And secondly is this. God is raising up messengers. You, disciples of Christ. God is raising up messengers who will go out in boldness and courage knowing they will be rejected knowing they'll be persecuted knowing they may suffer death he's raising up messengers like this now what were the servants you think about it what were those servants in the parable thinking owner owner of the vineyard you want me to do what 
Don't you know that all four that you've already sent have suffered and two of them have died? They're dead. And you want me to do what, owner of the vineyard? I want you to go and get my fruit. Go get it. I want you to go. And these guys could have got about halfway and hightailed it out of there and said, I'm not going to that vineyard to suffer death. No way. And I'm not going back to the owner either. But they didn't do it. And you see them again and again and again. The messengers of the owner willingly going into the vineyard knowing they'll suffer death. Knowing they'll suffer harm and persecution. Every one of those servants were persecuted. And every one of those messengers of the Old Testament persecuted. Remember what Stephen said. He said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And we're supposed to be instructed by this. The, the servants in the parable persecuted. The, the, the prophets of old persecuted. And then it comes to us and Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Blessed are you, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when they say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. God is raising up messengers who are not hindered by the rejection and the mistreatment of this world. God is raising up messengers who are not mesmerized by this world's road of ease, but are willing to step into the road of hardship. God's raising up messengers who are not obsessed with being liked. By people. But instead they'd rather preach the message of the master regardless of what men might do or think. God is raising up messengers so detached from the stuff of this world that it does not matter if they lose it all. They've got Christ. They've got Christ Jesus who promised I never leave you. I never forsake you. God is raising up messengers. God's raising up messengers who do not love their lives and so they're willing to lose it all, even to the point of death. God's raising up messengers. Will you be one of them? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us this parable. Thank You for being so patient and merciful. Thank you for so many in this room. You've, you've, won our, you've won us, God. You've turned, our, you've turned us to you. You've opened our eyes to see how glorious you are. And you've saved our souls. So many of us in this room, you've saved our souls, God. You had so much patience and mercy, and I praise you for that. And you saved our souls, Lord, before you retracted that hand of mercy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. And I pray that your word would sit on the heart of your people. And bring you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.